Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here again with Dr. Todd Shackelford, Distinguished Professor and Chair of Psychology at Oakland University. And we're here today to talk about the SAGE Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology. I mean, we're going to get into some of its most important topics, of course, not all of it, because it's very, very, it's a very extensive book. So, Dr. Shackelford, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on the show again. Thank you very much, Ricardo. I'm very happy to be here and to be talking about the, the, the new Sage Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I mean, this is basically an interview also to try to, uh, I've already had several interviews on the show about evolutionary psychology and I talked about very, very specific topics, but I also wanted to give uh, perhaps of, of, uh, an overview of what evolutionary psychology is about to people. So, I mean, if I were to ask you what is evolutionary psychology, what would be your answer? Well, I mean, you could sort of frame it in different ways depending on the audience, but as briefly as possible, I would say that evolutionary psychology is the study of the mind um, with explicit with the explicit, explicit application of Darwinian principles of natural and sexual selection. Um, evolutionary psychology is really psychology as the way it it is properly conducted. I mean, with an understanding and appreciation of our evolutionary history. Right. But uh, I mean, and this is perhaps a question that really gets to the crux of the kinds of things that lead to misunderstanding. So what what is uh, evolutionary psychology really interested in studying? Is it behavior? Is it the brain? Is it psychological mechanisms or something else? Sure. Uh, I mean, evolutionary psychology, I mean, again, you're going to get one evolutionary psychologist's take on this. I think the, the crucial focus of evolutionary psychology should be on psychological mechanisms, on the information processing mechanisms of the mind, not on expressed or manifested behavior, not on the biological, you know, material of the brain. Um, it's not that that's irrelevant. It's just that that's not, um, you know, that's that's the details, um, but the crux of the you know of the discipline, I would argue, should be on information processing, on the cognitive machinery of the mind, rather than the physiological machinery of the mind, or for that matter, on the expressed behavior that's produced by evolved mechanisms of the mind. Yeah, I think this is a very important question because sometimes, particularly when people look across cultures and they see uh, differences, uh, superficial differences in terms of behavior, they immediately conclude that we are completely different cross-culturally. But I mean, uh, when we look down into the psychological mechanisms, then that's where perhaps we get the human universal. Yeah, and that's that's where you find adaptation, psychological adaptation, is in, you know, the so-called design of the mind, you know, uh, the design features uh, that characterize the mechanisms of the mind. Certainly, you see cross-cultural differences in in behaviors, um, but these differences in behaviors can be produced, and, and frankly, are produced by, you know, differences in environmental inputs, for example. Um, and I think it is. You know, it is very, it's a slippery sort of appreciation 
um, it can be difficult for people to appreciate that the focus, I would argue, should not be on, for example, number of babies produced, you know, on reproduction, on the actual, you know, reproduction itself. Of course, in the ancestral past, it's differential reproduction that built these evolved psychological mechanisms. But measuring reproduction in the current, you know, the current environment, I don't think gives you anything useful, tells you anything useful, whether you're talking about humans or birds or any other species. Right. So just to look back in history a little bit, uh, what are the sorts of disciplines from which evolutionary psychology uh, derived most of its uh, uh, theories? I mean, not theories, but perhaps theoretical foundations. So, for example, I know that evolutionary biology was sure. a big one of them. So would you like to tell us about that and perhaps about other disciplines from which evolutionary psychology derived its uh, theoretical foundations? Sure. I mean, absolutely. You're right that, I mean, evolutionary bio, I mean, evolutionary psychology is, I think of it as a branch of biology. I think of it as a branch of, of evolutionary biology. Um, right. I mean, some people would argue that, that Darwin himself was the first or one of the first evolutionary psychologists. I mean, I think towards the end of Origin of Species, I'm sure many of your, your listeners know that he basically made a comment to the effect that, you know, um, light will be thrown on the origins of man. Uh, and psychological, you know, sort of our psychology will be understood, you know, with this perspective of, of evolution by natural selection. So certainly evolutionary biology and sort of classical Darwinian natural selection is an important, you know, contributor. It's the sort of main framework for understanding modern evolutionary psychology. But I mean, psychology itself and the focus on the mind and the mechanisms of the mind and, and cognitive psychology in particular, I think is, is a very important part of modern evolutionary psychology. Uh, you know, at the same time, there's no doubt that, you know, anthropology, you know, has deeply informed modern evolutionary psychology, especially, um, you know, bio, so-called biological anthropology. Um, and that is really what I, what I have always loved most about the field of evolutionary psychology is it is truly, I mean, it really is interdisciplinary. I mean, there's no, you, it's not a psychology, it's not a, a branch of psychology, I always say it's a perspective, you know, that is equal parts biology, anthropology, you know, um, some people would argue computer science, and certainly uh, cognitive science. So it's, it's very wide ranging, you have to be reasonably well read on, you know, a lot of different topics to appreciate modern evolutionary psychology. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned cognitive psychology, for example, and I think that was even uh, the background of people like Lida Cosmides, I guess, Absolutely. and that's and that's I think one of the reasons why, at least originally, I know that nowadays there are some people who dispute it, but originally, where the idea of the massive modularity of the human mind came from. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I consider Lita Cosmides unquestionably one of the founders of evolutionary psychology, um, her and, and her husband, John Tooby. I mean, along with David Buss, uh, but I think Lita Cosmides in particular uh, did more than anyone else for bringing evolutionary psychology, you know, into modern uh, cognitive science, making it uh, bringing evolutionary psychology, sort of sharpening the focus on 
the mechanisms of the mind and the information processing mechanisms of the mind. Um, and of course, she and John Tooby did a remarkable job in the early 90s, basically clarifying why it's important to focus on information processing mechanisms rather than ex expressed behavior. Um, and I mean, I still, to this day, when I teach evolutionary psychology at the graduate level, we go back and we spend several weeks reading uh, Tooby and Cosmides, I mean, a lot of their stuff, but in particular, uh, addressing this distinction between evolved psychology and expressed behavior. Uh, because it is a, you know, it's a, it's a slippery, you know, sort of, it seems obvious when I'm saying the words, but it is something that trips people up. Um, probably myself too. Um, but at any rate, um, yeah, I think that may be more than anything. Uh, I mean, obviously evolutionary biology, bringing evolution to the, to the table, of course, it's huge, but you know, and, and sort of the a crux of the matter. Uh, but then boy, bringing evolution to the mind in particular, to the information processing mechanisms of the mind has been just, is really fundamentally what's differentiated evolutionary psychology from say sociobiology or behavioral ecology. Right, I, I mean, do you in your classes use the adapted mind as a source? Because I mean, I was just trying to understand if uh, the adapted mind was one of the first books out there really giving a broad overview of what evolutionary psychology was to be about in the early 90s. So I was just trying to understand if nowadays it still stands and I mean if it was really a good way of theorizing evolutionary psychology almost 30 years ago. Well, I mean, my response is yes, it absolutely still stands. And I still, in particular, their chapter, Psychological Foundations of Culture. I mean, if there was one single thing that someone, you know, that I could encourage someone to read to understand evolutionary psychology, I would, I would assign Psychological Foundations of Culture, that chapter, that 120 page chapter that they have. I think it, it still stands rock solid today. I mean, it basically is, uh, a version of Pinker's The Blank Slate. Yeah. Um, um, and I think it's, I think it represents, you know, um, if you had to pick one thing uh, that sort of captures what evolutionary psychology is, that chapter does it. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's wide ranging, it's sweeping, but it also, you know, gets at the heart of the matter um, in terms of information processing mechanisms of the mind. And, you know, and then at the same time, of course, it addresses another massive confusion, which is the issue of cross-cultural, you know, universality and cross-cultural variability. Um, and I think they basically nailed it uh, 30 years ago. 30 years ago? Yeah. Almost yeah, 40. I think it was Wait. in 1992 it was published. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, even if I don't assign it in graduate courses, which I virtually always do, but I read it at least once a year. And I've read it at least once a year since 1992. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, that's one, one evolutionary psychologist's opinion. <laughs> yeah, but that's amazing. So uh, what would you say are the most foundational theories in evolutionary psychology? I mean, the ones from which you derive perhaps mid-level theories and then new hypotheses and so on? Well, I would say, um, I mean, certainly Trivers and, and several of Trivers, uh, Trivers's 
theories have been, you know, incredibly productive. Um, you know, parent-offspring conflict, um, I mean, his theory of sexual selection, I mean, or his sort of uh, modernization of, of some of Darwin's work on sexual selection. I mean, a lot of it does sort of turn on, on where a lot of the work is. It's on sex differences and mating and parenting sorts of behaviors. And I mean, you know, that is the case, that, that that is where evolutionary psychology got a lot of its sort of, you know, initial um, impetus is from work on sexual, you know, sexual behavior, mating, parenting, and and a lot of Trivers' work in particular was, you know, fundamental uh, to, to getting that ball, those balls rolling. Yeah. So uh, let's talk then about sex differences. So. Uh... If someone were to ask you, perhaps, for you to explain in a simple manner what are the kinds of steps, evolutionary steps, we have to understand to have a good grasp of where sex differences stem from, I mean, how would you put it? Well, I would say, I mean, as simply as possible, and this would be true for, I'll just talk about humans. I mean. Basically, you would expect sex differences only in those domains in which the sexes, that is males and females, have recurrently faced different adaptive problems. Um, you wouldn't expect sex differences, for example, in, you know, just speaking generally here, you wouldn't expect sex differences in various domains of nutrition, for example, or, you know, um, exercise, or, um, you know, uh, you would expect them instead in areas that uh, that reflect sex-differentiated adaptive problems. So where males and females have recurrently faced, you know, specific adaptive problems. So, I mean, one sort of blindingly clear sex difference is in uh, gestating offspring, you know, gestating and birthing offspring. I mean, you certainly would expect a suite of sex differences uh, along lines related to um, you know, to parenting, for example, um, given the sex differenti differentiated adaptive problems that males and females have faced um, with respect to um, investing in and raising and caring for offspring, never mind gestating and birthing them. Um, so that's how I would think about it. Um, and that would be true for any sexually reproduce reproducing species. You'd expect sex differences only in those domains in which the sexes have recurrently faced different adaptive problems. Right. But in order to understand, uh, I mean, what were the mechanisms, the evolutionary mechanisms that led to the evolution of sex differences, I mean, we would have to look into sexual selection, but also, for example, things like intrasexual competition, right? Because I would imagine that perhaps different adaptations to uh, different kinds of uh, intersexual selection and intrasexual competition would lead to different sex differences or the rise of different sex differences. I mean, am I thinking right here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, of course. Absolutely. Um, you'd, you'd expect, yeah, again, sex differences where, right, the sex is faced, you know, we currently face different adaptive problems. And Typically, what it boils down to, I mean, one way of thinking about this is that uh, the sexes typically don't invest equally in offspring. 
uh, minimally speaking, that is. So the question is, you know, what must a male invest in an offspring in order to, uh, to you know, to bring it to reproductive maturity? And you can contrast that with what must a female invest minimally. And what you often find, um, certainly in mammals and certainly in humans, is that you know the, the investment of females is significantly, substantially greater, the minimum investment of females. And that means that females, um, women, have potentially more to lose in a poor mate choice or in you know poor decision making um, related to you know um, pregnancy and childbirth and, and producing offspring. And that then means that females also are uh, in humans and in many species, not in all species, but in, in many species, females also are um, sort of the limiting resource, the limiting reproductive resource. And it's males, therefore, that must compete for access to females rather than females competing for access to males. Although even in, I mean, in humans too, females compete for access to highly valued males. Uh, but, but on average, what you see is that intersexual competition, that is competition uh, between men, is often more intense, um, more certainly more violent uh, than it is among females. Right. Uh, and I mean, these parent-offspring conflict, uh, or not parent-offspring conflict, before that parental investment, uh, does it stem from the fact that uh, we have uh, paternity uncertainty on the part of males? I mean, is that the main reason why males tend to invest less in their offspring than females? I would say that that, you know, uh, that's certainly an important reason. Um, and it may be the main reason. Um, I mean, it is a profoundly different adaptive problem for males and females. I mean, males, you know, ancestrally speaking, human males could never have been certain uh, that the offspring that their partner was producing was in fact their own genetic offspring. Um, and, and it's not that they had to be conscious of this, it's just that our ancestors are those men who behaved in a way that made it more likely that their offspring, that the offspring produced by their partners were in fact genetically their own. I mean, females, aside from the switched at birth sort of scenarios in modern hospitals, I mean, females are always certain of maternity. Males are never certain of paternity. Again, aside from the fact that you can now do genetic testing. Yeah, I mean, but that's a novel technology, so it wouldn't have any implications in terms of how we would have evolved. Right. No, no, not at all. Yeah. I mean, and it may, you know, uh, no, certainly not. It wouldn't have any implications for, you know, for understanding the design of the mechanisms of the mind related to paternity uncertainty, for example. Could this differential parental investment have also anything to do with the fact that uh, men and women have sort of different optimal reproductive strategies in terms of the optimal reproductive strategy for men would be for them to try to impregnate as many women as possible. And so, I mean, they would perhaps seek out to do that instead of being with just one woman and investing all the resources into the offspring that would come from that woman. And the woman, perhaps the women would have another optimal reproductive strategy because they can't produce more than one offspring at a time, or at least one egg that lead to one offspring at a time. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, uh, 
that's the way to, you know, that's certainly a very reasonable way to frame on average sex difference. On average. Yeah. I mean, on average, there's absolutely no doubt that men, you know, are more interested in casual sex. They're more interested in, in you know, more sexual partners. Um, now, that's not to say that there aren't women who are more interested in casual sex than many men. There, we know that that's the case. Uh, but on average, uh, in every single culture for which we've collected data, I mean, which is now, you know, in the hundreds, um, cultures, that is, and tens of thousands of participants, I mean, there's not a single culture where, on average, women uh, seek short-term casual sex more than do men. Um, and that's a very sort of typical mammalian sex difference. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's what the people in psychology call sociosexuality, right? Yes, sociosexuality. Um, I mean, it's, you know, been framed with a lot of different terms. But yeah, I mean, that's what, you know, Gangestad and, and his colleagues 30 years ago called sociosexuality. That's right. Yeah. So I would like to ask you about uh, the sort of role that specific theories play in evolutionary psychology. So what about a life history theory? I mean, what does it add to the picture of evolutionary psychology that perhaps we wouldn't get from other sources? Yeah, I'm sort of um, non-committal on the specific value of life history theory for evolutionary psychology. I mean, it certainly it's been very useful in predicting a variety of different sex differences in particular. Um, but it's not clear to me, you know, how, well, uh, I guess I want to be clear that, you know, I'm, I'm well aware that life history theory, you know, has its origins, you know, in non-humans, it has its origins in, you know, in biology, um, you know, uh, whereas, you know, evolutionary psychologists have, you know, grabbed a hold of life history theory and, you know, developed various means of assessing, you know, fast versus slow life history. Um, I mean, it seems to me that what they're finding, um, including, you know, some of our own work um, and Nicole Barbero's work, is that there are sex differences. I mean, there are, there are replicable sex differences in, you know, um, pursuit of short-term casual sex and investment in short-term, you know, sort of immediate uh, resource extraction or short-term mating, um, you know, as contrasted with, you know, relatively longer-term perspectives and, and um, longer-term investment in fewer partners um, and fewer children, fewer offspring. So I'm, I guess what I'm saying is it's not clear to me that uh, life history theory offers anything unique above and beyond, you know, um, sociosexuality and, you know, um, sexual strategies theory, as it was presented by, you know, Boss and Schmidt. But that may be just a consequence of my, you know, failure to understand the nuances of life history theory. And I, right. you know, and I concede that. Right. And what about attachment theory? Because uh, as far as I understand it, originally it was proposed by John Bowlby. Sure. And I mean, he was at the same time trying to develop a theory that had a biological basis, but he was also a psychoanalyst. So perhaps 
I don't know, perhaps he took too much the role of the environment into account. I'm not sure. Yeah. What, I mean, what do you think about it and uh, where do you place it in the context of evolutionary psychology? Uh, I guess to speak as plainly as possible, I don't find much very useful in attachment theory. I find it okay. more confusing uh, and I think it clutters things more than it clarifies things. Um, you know, especially sort of classical attachment theory, the argument, you know, with Bowlby and some of his early, some of the early work, um, you know, this argument that attachments, you know, early in life are then sort of, they spill over into attachments later in life. And that just strikes me as not the way the mind is designed to operate. Um, I mean, infant parent relationships are profoundly different than romantic partner relationships. And I think you have a whole series of different adaptive problems involved. Um, all of that said, certainly there are replicable patterns of relationships when you look at um, attachment styles, for example. I mean, we've done some of this work ourselves. Um, in that, you know, this it's real data. Um, once again, I think similar to life history theory, it's not clear to me that attachment theory offers something unique, um, that it uniquely contributes to our understanding of the design of the mind. And I think much of what attachment theory contributes has been found with a different series of variables or terms uh, in work that was, you know, sort of inspired by sexual strategies theory or, uh, um, you know, some of the work by Gangestad and Simpson. Um, so, again, I'll concede that maybe I just don't have, you know, a clear sense of just how valuable attachment theory is. Maybe I've, you know, become blinkered by my early exposure to sexual strategies theory and some of these, some of this other work. So do you think, or I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if this is, this is a fair question to ask or not, but do you think that evolutionary psychology without having access to things like life history theory and attachment theory would be able to get at the same kind of knowledge we derive from them uh, by itself? I mean, by employing other kinds of theories? Uh, I mean, I'm happy to be, I'm happy to be, you know, to have the argument, but my answer at this moment is, yeah, I don't think you need attachment theory. I don't think you need, um, life history theory. I don't think you need these theories, uh, to understand, you know, the most important features of human psychology. I'm open to, you know, to an argument otherwise. I'm not suggesting they're not useful. I'm just saying my reading of the literature is that they're not, uh, our understanding of human psychology and behavior doesn't depend on, you know, a deep appreciation of attachment theory or life history theory. Mm -hmm. Do you, in your research as an evolutionary psychology, take into account things like, for example, Tim Bergen's for questions, I mean, when trying to understand the workings and the evolution of specific psychological mechanisms? Um, I think it's important to. I think it's, I, personally, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about how mechanisms developed. Um, I think it's um, a part of evolutionary psychology. Um, but I don't think it's, you know, the linchpin of evolutionary psychology. 
um, I mean, I'm, of course, I'm familiar with Tim Bergen's work and, you know, and I appreciate the contributions and I'm glad there are people like Dave Bjorklund and David Geary who are doing interesting and important work on development, specifically on the development of evolved mechanisms. But, you know, I just don't find it all that interesting, personally. Mm -hmm. I, right, but 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 I mean, if we take into account the four questions, yeah. do you think that do we think that perhaps evolutionary psychology is more dedicated to answer one or two of it, or would it be able to answer all four of them? Um, oh, I think that evolutionary psychology, the perspective, certainly is capable of answering all four of them. Uh, but I think you have to have, you know, um, I guess it depends on. Um, I mean, I don't think all four questions are equally important. I think mm -hmm. an, an evolutionary psychology is focused on, I think, uh, is most importantly focused on, you know, the design features of psychological adaptations. Um, I'm not discounting, you know, that there is value in understanding how those mechanisms developed within a particular lifetime, or, um, you know, how those mechanisms are built into the brain you know, and, and how they are, you know, sort of expressed by, you know, you know, brain matter. Um, but I, I see those questions as relatively more peripheral. Um, yeah, but I think it, it's not like you, an evolutionary psychologist, well, uh, an evolutionary psychologist, I would say is, is someone who's focused on, again, on the cognitive machinery of the mind, on the information processing mechanisms of the mind, however they're built, however they develop. I mean, I always say in my, my classes that, and this, you know, uh, I mean, this is gonna, um, well, uh, I always say, I don't really care what the brain is made of. For all I know, it's made of bubble gum or tinker toys. I mean, it really doesn't in some sense matter. I mean, I'm interested in how these information processing mechanisms function. Um, and again, I appreciate that there are people and I'm grateful there are people who are deeply interested in you know the neurophysiology of the brain I just don't think that's critical to understanding um, the evolved mechanisms of the mind but, but again that's me right uh, would you say that evolutionary psychology is fundamentally an adaptationist approach to the human mind? I'm asking you that because I mean I remember even reading the adapted mind that uh, Cosmides and Tubi and Barco uh, also mention uh, things like, for example, byproducts and genetic drift. So, I mean, how do you deal with those kinds of things? I, I would say that evolutionary psychology is fundamentally, an, you know, presents or, you know, uh, encapsulates an adaptationist view of the mind. In other words, uh, that. The goal is to identify and describe, you know, the adaptations of the mind, um, rather than, you know, the byproducts of adaptations or, you know, what Tubi and Cosmides refer to as the noise, you know, the blips, you know, um, the here and there sort of zigs and zags. I mean, the focus of evolutionary psychology is on, you know, what is one way to think about it is what is universal to all of psychology, um, or at least. Um, to all of one sex or the other sex. So in other words, yes, I think that is, those are the most interesting questions, not just for evolutionary psychology, but for evolutionary biology. I mean, it's, they're fundamentally adaptationist in the sense that 
you know, the goal is to understand the evolved mechanisms in terms of evolutionary psychology, evolved mechanisms of the mind. Right. Okay, so let me see if I can frame this question correctly. Uh, so, uh, how do you deal with culture in evolutionary psychology? Because, for example, I remember, again, in the, in the Adapted Mind, Cosmides introduces the concept of evoked culture, which is basically so we would have the same underlying evolved psychology and by being exposed to different environments, different ecological circumstances that would give rise to different cultures, different behaviors and so on. But uh, on the other hand, there's also the work by people who are not necessarily evolutionary psychologists, people like Joseph Henrik, who make a very, very compelling case that perhaps some of the features of our minds uh, have been influenced by the kinds of cultures we've been living in and perhaps uh, also some psychological mechanisms derived from culture. So, I mean, uh, where do you stand there and how do you think about culture? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a super interesting area. And I think, I, I think that that's one of the most interesting areas of evolutionary psychology. One of the most interesting future areas of evolutionary psychology is, you know, often referred to as cultural evolutionary psychology or evolutionary cultural psychology. And, you know, the way I think about it and the way I think most evolutionary psychologists think about it is as Tubing Cosmides sort of framed it in 92. Um, you know, the idea being that, I mean, culture is not some independent entity that, you know, sort of reaches down, you know, and manipulates psychology or builds psychology. I mean, culture is the product of psychology. It's the product of individual humans um, interacting socially. Um, so I don't, I see, I guess the bottom line is, my sense is that if you want to understand cultural differences or cultural similarities, there's nothing for it but to understand the evolved psychological mechanisms that produce those cultural uh, behaviors. Um, and I don't see how one can, you know, make a huge amount of progress in cultural psychology without taking, without appreciating that culture is produced by mechanisms of the mind. Um, and I do understand that there's work, um, I, was, I thought you were going to say work by uh, like Pascal Boyer and, you know, yeah. Scott Atran and, and, and there's a lot of neat work out there that, that looks at, okay, once the cultural product is out there, you know, what happens to it and how does it sort of um, infiltrate, you know, cult, how does it infiltrate groups and how is it transmitted? And I think that's super interesting as well. Um, and I don't think you necessarily need to appreciate the evolved uh, mechanisms of the mind. Um, I think it's probably super useful uh, to understand how the mind is designed to, to get a hold of and to make, you know, to sort of predict which cultural beliefs or values are, are likely to stick more than others. Um, so again, I think it's a really, really interesting and, um, and I think it's a, it's a difficult area. Um, but I see it as entirely consistent with or entirely commensurate with or, um, you know, cultural, you know, a cultural psychology, one that focuses on either 
or both uh, differences and similarities, um, I think uh, will be you know greatly improved by an appreciation of the design of the mind. And similarly, I think evolutionary psychologists, um, you know, would do well to understand and to appreciate cultural differences as well as cultural similarities. Right. And what do you think we learn or what do we get by studying and comparing ourselves to other animals in terms of comparative psychology? I mean, what specific kinds of insights do we get from that? Um, well, I mean, I think it's all but invaluable. I think it's it's really, really important to appreciate that that humans are not the only species on Earth, that there are, you know, multitudes of other species, um, many of which, let's just take mammals, um, you know, many of which share, you know, many of the same sets of adaptive problems and therefore are likely to share, not guaranteed to share, are likely to share uh, many of the same uh, evolved solutions to those adaptive problems. I find this especially useful uh, in a lot of my own work, for example, um, looking at things like rape in the context of intimate relationships. Um, uh, I mean, one of the, so there's a lot of work on, on rape in marriage or rape in long-term relationships. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the explanations or so-called explanations for rape in intimate relationships, you know, is sort of turns on, oh, well, it's a, it's a consequence of, you know, exposure to, you know, modern television and messages that men receive about owning their partners and about controlling their partners. Right. But then one of the first things I often ask students is, you know, does that make sense as an understanding of why, you know, why ducks rape their partners or why, you know, you know, actually rape is not at all uncommon among various avian species but I mean are you going to argue now that that you know that you know exposure to modern television is somehow accounting for why male ducks are much more likely to rape their partners than our female ducks to rape their partners I mean it's a rhetorical question I mean I think no I don't think that's that that can't be the whole story so I think it can be very useful uh, to appreciate that there are you know many other species that share some of the same, uh, you know, evolutionary history, some of the same adaptive problems, and therefore are likely to share uh, some of the same evolved solutions to those adaptive problems. Um, I know you've had, you've talked with uh, my colleague here at Oakland University, Jennifer Vonk. Um, right. I mean, she and I have, over the years, you know, really done what we could to try to bring these two areas together, comparative psychology and evolutionary psychology. Um, but it's funny because, you know, a lot of evolutionary psychologists don't, don't seem to have, and the same is probably true for me, uh, don't have sort of a deep appreciation for work on non-humans and for the psychology and behavior of non-humans. And I think it can be very useful um, as a, you know, as a way to, to sort of, you know, limit, you know, various hypotheses. It's interesting that you mentioned Jennifer Vonk because uh, she also came to my mind and I was about to mention her because in our interview back in 2018, one of the biggest topics we explored there was 
convergent evolution. And I mean, I was yeah. just thinking that perhaps when we think about comparing ourselves to other animals, we think about the most obvious ones, the ones that are more closely related to us, like chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and so on. But there's also very valuable work to do in terms of comparing ourselves to animals that even if they are uh, farther apart from us in terms of our evolutionary history, they were exposed to the same kinds of evolutionary problems and evolutionary pressures and even de or uh, developed or evolved the same kinds of solutions to those problems. So also comparing ourselves to those kinds of animals. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I've done a lot of work on uh, on the application of sperm competition theory to humans. Um, and I mean, I freely admit that many of the hypotheses we've tested in humans, in, in mated men and women, so partner men and women, were directly inspired by work on birds. I mean, most birds are socially monogamous and mo much of the work on sperm competition has focused on birds, including work on partner rape and domestic violence. And I mean, it's all there. Um, and, you know, including some work, we published some work on um, in-pair copulatory frequency. So the frequency with which males pursue copulation. I mean, um, there's, you know, all, this work was all inspired, I mean, very directly from work on, on birds. And obviously humans are birds, but the mating system is very similar. You know, it's ostensibly monogamous, both sexes, you know, are unfaithful to one another, and it's males but not females that risk paternity uncertainty, and therefore males are much more, um, you know, sort of um, active in terms of, you know, direct mate retention behaviors. And then if you look at sperm competition in particular, you see many of the same behaviors, you know, in, certain, in terms of, um, you know, it, uh, the production of ejaculates, uh, you know, the frequency of, of copulation. Um, and so, I mean, I have found it, incredibly valuable. I mean, that's part of why I, I myself am, am biased in favor of a much broader appreciation of, you know, of comparative uh, psychology and appreciating non-humans, because I've found it just, I mean, indispensable. Mm -hmm. So this is a question that perhaps would, would be more for evolutionary biologists specifically, but in evolutionary psychology, do we take into account mechanisms like, for example, group selection? Do you use something like that to try to understand the evolution of certain psychological traits? Or is that dispute between uh, individual and group selection something that evolutionary psychologists do not care about that much? I mean... I mean, I can't speak for all evolutionary psychologists. I can just speak sure. for myself. And that, you know, my reading of the literature is that George Williams destroyed, you know, the utility of group selection. He basically nailed it in 1966 um, with his book, Adaptation and Natural Selection, uh, where he basically, you know, um, in very clear language, you know, made it very difficult to, you know, well, what he argued was that, you know, an understanding of group selection um, is unlikely to, you know, uh, to be useful uh, in terms of understanding the design of the mechanisms or the design of adaptations of the mind of most animals. 
Now, I mean, there are certain species where group selection, I think, can be very useful, um, but it's they're very peculiar sorts of species um, where, you know, the relatedness of individuals is much higher, for example, and, you know, there's no... Uh, that, that would yeah. be, for example, they use social insects. Yeah, right? social hymenoptera, and, and you can, you know, where there's very little inflow or outflow, and so, you know, it's a very restricted sort of group um, where basically, you know, individual bees are like cells in a body. Um, and I think that's a very peculiar sort of arrangement. And that is where group selection is, is incredibly useful. Um, but I'm not aware of a single example of an adaptation in humans, for example, that can be more efficiently described as the product of group selection than as the product of individual level selection. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying it's, you know, the parameters are such that um, it's, strikes me as shockingly unlikely that group selection is going to offer anything useful uh, to understanding the design of the human mind. Right. So I would like to ask you also, what are your thoughts on the relationship between evolutionary psychology and behavioral genetics? Because I mean, I've been thinking about this for a while and I've had some uh, people on the show that are both evolutionary psychologists and behavioral genetics. And the idea that I have is that since in terms of evolution, genes is the way by which you transmit uh, traits to the next generation. And the fact that in behavioral genetics, we get to prove that uh, certain psychological mechanisms have a genetic basis. Wouldn't you think that they would marry well with one another? <laughs> you would think so. I know. Um, I mean, I too have struggled with you know, how to integrate evolutionary psychology and behavioral genetics. And I have a lot of colleagues who are behavioral geneticists. And I mean, I don't think anyone's done it. I don't think anyone has, you know, successfully married, you know, evolutionary psychology with behavioral genetics. I mean, we have a chapter, uh, there's a chapter in the handbook. And, and I always recruit behavioral geneticists to include, you know, to contribute to, you know, any handbook or, you know, uh, volume I happen to be working on in evolutionary psychology because I think, I mean, the work that behavioral geneticists are doing, I think it's very important work. Um, and I think it gets at the heart of understanding individual differences. Um, we're talking about humans now, I mean, in any species, but with regard to humans, I think, um, I mean, there's no doubt that uh, it's, I, I myself don't know how best to wed these disciplines. Um, somebody's going to, you know, make a huge contribution when they can, you know, convincingly, you know, marry these two disciplines, which I think are both, well, uh, I'm an evolutionary psychologist, but I think behavioral genetics is um, incredibly important. And I think it's, it may be the one discipline or area that's even more misunderstood than evolutionary psychology. Um, so I think there's a lot of, I mean, Optimistically speaking, I think there's great hope for massive progress in terms of wedding, you know, these, you know, these two areas, evolutionary psychology and behavioral genetics. I'm just not sure, you know, how that's going to all play out. I hope people continue to, to work on it, though. Yeah, I was just also thinking that perhaps since behavioral genetics, at least as far as I understand it, it's one of the most scientifically solid social oh. sciences. I mean, because we have maybe 100 years of 
twin studies and stuff like that. And I mean, they replicate and replicate oh, over, yeah. uh, time and time again. I mean, perhaps, uh, and since it's focused on genetics, of course, right. and genetics is the basis for evolutionary biology and in this case evolutionary psychology i mean perhaps uh, I, 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 again i also don't know how specifically you would marry both disciplines but uh, i mean it would be very good i think for the social sciences oh absolutely i mean there are people who are actively struggling with this you know uh, uh, aj figueredo um, who, I don't know if you've read any, any of his work. He's at Arizona, uh, AJ Figueredo. And then uh, Brian Boutwell is doing some really neat stuff. These are, uh, Brian Boutwell's a behavioral geneticist who, uh, you know, on the other side of things, appreciates that there's got to be a way to make some, you know, defensible sense of this. Um, but, you know, and you mentioned, I mean, they're highly replicable, you know, the, the results in behavioral genetics, not just in terms of, you know, the replicability of heritability, but you know, you know, all of this work on heritability is just as, you know, um, important for you know uh, for understanding uh, the environment. I mean, you know, so we know that environmental effects also are incredibly replicable. Um, I mean, things are turning out to be a little bit different than we thought. You know, in terms of you know the shared environment versus the non-shared environment. Um, but yeah. Uh, I think there's, you know, just a huge amount of work. It seems to me uh, can be done and will be done. Um, I noticed that uh, you've spoken with, um, uh, God, I'm just blanked on his name. Uh, he had a brand new book that came out just maybe a couple of years ago, uh, a behavioral geneticist. Um, uh, actually got, Robert Blumen. Yes, thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah who I mean, it's a wonderful book, um, and and I think his, you know. Although I, I do also sense that not all behavioral geneticists seem to be interested in sort of bridging, you know, their field with evolutionary psychology. Um, yeah. He certainly does. He seems quite open to it, um, which is kind of strange, really. I mean, they seem averse to linking some people. Some behavioral geneticists seem rather averse to linking up with evolutionary psychology. Uh, at any rate, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, do you think, and perhaps this will make a good segue to my question about individual differences, do you think that perhaps one of the difficulties in terms of trying to integrate evolutionary psychology with behavioral genetics is that behavioral genetics tends to focus much more on individual differences and where they stem from and evolutionary psychology would be more interested in universal psychological mechanisms? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um... There's no doubt that, I mean, evolutionary psychology has, you know, is built on, you know, on a framework that's focused on, you know, human nature, that is, on what all humans share, and then also on sex differences in particular. But, I mean, it's unquestionably the focus on, you know, the, the area of individual differences is where evolutionary psychology, at least currently, is weakest. Um, and has the hardest time understanding, you know. Um, I, I suppose that that might well be true for for evolutionary biology generally. Um, but you know, I mean, this is not magical or mysterious. It just it, it, the work needs to be done, and I think that's part of why I 
am so optimistic about behavioral genetics um, is that I think it's it's a pathway, you know, to understanding, you know, the, you know, how to how to frame and how to how to account for individual differences from, you know, an evolutionary perspective. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if this would be oversimplifying things too much or not, but I mean, it's also the case that even evolutionary theory of originally predicted individual variation. I mean, and that's the basis for natural selection, selecting sure. between individuals that differ across various dimensions. So. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, individual differences are the, you know, are grist for the mill of natural selection. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's one of those areas. I mean, the fact that there's, I'm not, there is work on individual differences from an evolutionary perspective, but, but the fact that it is sort of the, the most complicated, difficult, you know, sort of challenging area is, you know, in some ways kind of ironic. It reminds me of, you know, the state of evolutionary psychology where there's almost no work on pregnancy you know, on, I, there is a little bit of work, uh, but, you know, it seems like such a, an obvious, you know, s sort of place where you might want to look if you were an evolutionary psychologist. And yet there's very little work on pregnancy and how that affects relationships. And um, I mean, again, there's a little bit of work, but it's always amazed me um, that, you know, these sometimes the obvious stuff, it's just so obvious, you know, that you can't, you can't see it, it's right in front of your face the whole time. And I think that's, that's sort of how I've thought about individual differences for a long time. I mean, one of the things I think, I think Tubi and Cosmides, I think they, at least in their earliest work, you know, they were, I mean, I can't recall sort of exactly what they said, but they were, you know, sort of treated individual differences as, you know, just sort of um, irrelevant blips and bleeps. Um, that really weren't all that interesting. Um, and I think um, and there was a special issue of the Journal of Personality uh, that David Buss edited. I think he, he edited it. This was back in 1990. Uh, and I think uh, Tubi and Cosmides contributed a chapter and, you know, basically people from, you know, various disciplines and areas tried to tackle individual differences from an evolutionary perspective. And more than any other set of authors, Tubi and Cosmides, basically said, there's much ado about nothing here. I mean, we don't need to spin our wheels on, you know, on adaptive individual differences or patterns of traits. Um, and I think, you know, because they are so sharp, and, you know, and, and, you know, had already made important contributions, I think it may have sort of thrown some water on the fire of, of understanding individual differences. Um, but at any rate, that was a long time ago. Um, and I, I do think it's an interesting area. It's just, I find it incredibly challenging. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was just insisting a little bit on these kinds of in integrative questions. I mean, of trying mm -hmm. to understand how we could integrate different areas of psychology, because that's also one of the critiques that people, even scientists outside the social science, uh, sciences leverage against the social sciences, because it seems to be 
all these connected fields and sure. I mean at the same time you look into specific areas like for example as, I, as we said behavioral genetics, evolutionary psychology, even the psychology of intelligence and so on where people are doing very very solid scientific work and then I mean if if we could uh, try to get uh, a way of integrating them, I mean, it would be great. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think evolutionary psychology, yeah, I, well, you mentioned evolutionary psychology, behavioral genetics, I think have done a much better job by necessity, you know, of, you know, forging links with other disciplines, biology, right. anthropology, you know, um, I mean, it does feel sometimes like a lot of psychology is really, it's like an echo chamber. You know, they're, they're just talking to themselves and don't seem to appreciate that there are other disciplines. Um, I'm sure I'm guilty of it as well. Um, but at any rate, yeah, I think it's, it is, you know, a criticism of psychology for sure. And I think that's one of the benefits of taking an evolutionary perspective is that you're appropriately, you know, drawing from, you know, other disciplines. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is any weird problem in evolutionary psychology? I mean, in the sense of focusing too much on the so-called weird societies, because I mean, I'm asking you this because it strikes me that evolutionary psychology, at least it seems to me, is one of the most across cultural disciplines out there. I mean, you get lots and lots of studies where people are trying to look at the same issues in tens of different societies across the globe and even uh, societies even outside of the Western sphere to, to be more universal, let's say. Uh, and then, I mean, perhaps the only other area where people do that is anthropology, but maybe because many times people come into anthropology with a different theoretical lens, like, for example, cultural anthropology, where they're, they're much more uh, focused on the differences across societies. I mean, perhaps they don't deal with the information the same way evolutionary psychologists do. So what do you think about it? Yeah, but I think, um, right, I think uh, evolutionary psychology in particular has less of a problem with, you know, studying Western, you know, people's, you know, weird samples than arguably any other discipline, any other area within psychology. I mean, I think you're right that, I mean, this isn't something new either. I mean, evolutionary psychology has, you know, you know, a long history of cross-cultural research. I mean, dating back to, you know, buses, you know, now well-known work, you know, on mate preferences. And so I think in some ways, you know, evolutionary psychology should be held up as sort of the, you know, an example of, you know, a discipline, an area, you know, that appropriately, you know, assesses or values, you know, uh, non-Western samples. Um, at the same time, you know, humans are humans. I mean, whether you happen to be in a hunter-gatherer tribe or in, you know, Rochester, Michigan, you have the same basic evolved mechanisms. And I, you know, that's an area where I think, and I maybe I would say this, but I think that's, you know, 
very much has been made of you know the reliance on so-called weird cultures. Um, I, th I think too much has been made of that. I think there's no reason to expect that you know studying college students. I mean, it depends on the topic, but I mean, if you're interested in mating psychology, it's just as reasonable to study college students in Michigan as it is to study you know the Hiwi or the Ache. Um, it's not like you're going to get some magically clearer answer if you study the psychological mechanisms as they exist in non-Western peoples. Um, and I often think that, uh, you know, some of the pushback, you know, from uh, anthropologists, um, they seem to think that data from non-Western cultures is somehow more useful. Um, generally, I, I find that, um, why? You know, I mean, why would it be more useful that it happens to be coming from, from, you know, the mind of someone located in a hunter-gatherer tribe? At any rate, I think um, I think a bit too much has been made of the reliance on so-called weird samples. Um, nevertheless, I mean, evolutionary psychology has, you know, arguably done more than perhaps anthropology itself, you know, for collecting data from non-Western populations. I mean, is evolutionary psychology an area that has also suffered with the replication crisis? I mean, I was just trying to understand that if perhaps by having this sort of theoretical basis we've been talking about in connection with other disciplines like evolutionary biology and so on, having this strong biological basis and the fact that since its very beginning, it has been trying to look across different cultures, different societies, that perhaps it wouldn't suffer from uh, the replication crisis as the same as other disciplines, as I much think, as other disciplines. Yeah, well, and that's what the data seem to suggest. I mean, some of the classic findings, you know, produced by evolutionary psychologists, you know, work on mate difference, on uh, sex differences and mate preferences and sex differences and desire for sexual variety. These are some of the most robust findings. They have been replicated, not just across cultures, but across historical periods. Um, we've done some of this work and, and others have as well. I mean, um, I think that's, that's exactly right. I think part of the, you know, I mean, that was never the intention was to produce, necessarily to produce results that would be you know, immune to a replication crisis. But I think by virtue of the fact that, you know, many of the theories that inform evolutionary psychology are, are you know, theories that are, you know, that cross-cut many different species um, and many different disciplines. Um, so there's that and the fact that evolutionary psychology has almost from the beginning um, been a, a cross-culturally sort of active field. I think at the end of the day, that may help to account for why evolutionary psychological research has tended to fare better in terms of, you know, replicability and the robustness of findings. Right. So uh, I would like to get now into the more muddy questions, let's say, and talk about things like morality slash ethics and the sort of political aspects that people tend to attach to evolutionary psychology. So, I mean, one of the things that we can study by using an evolutionary lens is human morality. I mean, uh, we have evolutionary ethics, for example, and there are philosophers 
sure. who approach ethics through an evolutionary lens. I mean, by studying uh, how human morality evolved and perhaps the sort of emotions that we have attached to moral questions and how we perhaps universally tend to think about different moral questions, would you say that evolutionary psychology can be prescriptive in any way or is it simply descriptive? Sorry. Um, well, I think it's primarily descriptive. I must say that I think this is another area that I think is really, really interesting and I think has a, a very bright future uh, in terms of, you know, progress. Um, also, I think it's a very challenging area. Um, I mean, I mean, this gets us into questions of, you know, can science inform our ethics? Can science mm -hmm. inform our morality? I mean, I actually find, I realize there's lots of, you know, arguments about this and lots of, uh, but I mean, if you, you know, if you argue that what is moral is that which decreases suffering, well then, if you understand what causes suffering, you know, I mean, then there's a sense in which, um, you know, evolutionary or science generally uh, can inform what is good and what is right. Um, so, if, you know, we can, I think this is, you know, Sam Harris probably made it most well known, but, you know, the argument that, you know, if, you know, behaviors that, you know, inflict unnecessary suffering, you know, which we've identified as doing so, you know, scientifically, well, then we can say that those are wrong. Those are morally wrong behaviors. Um, so there is a sense in which science can inform morality, uh, but I think that's certainly not where most of the work right now is in evolutionary psychology. I think most of that work is still um, in the business of describing the evolved psychological mechanisms that produce moral feelings or moral emotions. Um, I don't know if that gets at what you were asking me. Yes, it gets. Uh, and I mean, more specifically, nowadays, for example, people are very interested in animal ethics and issues having to do with animal welfare. Do you think that disciplines like evolutionary psychology could also provide people with uh, important knowledge as to, for example, when we compare yeah. ourselves to other animals and vice versa, perhaps get, get to a better understanding of the kinds of mental experiences other animals have and also perhaps how we should treat them. Yes, I think that's, that's a great point. I, I'm not sure evolutionary psychology is uniquely situated to do that, but I think, yes, I think one way to improve the way I mean, just for example, we treat animals is to appreciate that they have a complex psychology that includes the production of emotions that we would recognize. Um, and certainly, for example, that, you know, that species like, you know, cows and chickens and pigs are quite capable of experiencing intense suffering. Um, and I think we know that on the basis of, well, we know that on the basis at a minimum of scientific research that provides evidence that you know, you know, heart rate increases, you know, when a when an animal experiences pain, you know, that breathing increases. Um, I mean, none of these are, you know, sort of lockdown proof. Uh, but I think yes, I think to the extent that 
you know, we're better understanding, you know, the way that non-human minds operate and the fact that they do operate, um, you know, I think uh, contributes or at least can contribute to, you know, well, what I would argue would be a more moral, you know, way of living. Yeah, I perhaps also asked you that question because I also wanted to know to what extent are evolutionary psychologists interested in studying the sort of more subjective aspect of our psychological lives? I mean, not only how the psychological mechanisms operate, but perhaps how we ourselves consciously experience things. I mean, is that something that evolutionary psychologists also do work on or not? Yes, yes, definitely. Um, well, I, as you were speaking, I just thought of some of the work on pain and the experience of pain. Um, I mean, this is a fundamentally subjective experience, at least as the, in the way that we're talking about, um, you know, literally assessing, you know, people's sort of moment to moment you know, changes in, in pain, um, you know, and identifying, for example, sex differences in, you know, some of the, you know, some of the pain reports. Um, but all of which is to say, yes, I think evolutionary psychology has, uh, you know, um, has, you know, sort of a history of investigating some of these questions. And then as I was just now talking, I was thinking about sexual arousal. I mean, that's a subjective experience. And, and there certainly is work asking, uh, people about um, their experiences with sexual arousal, um, sexual fantasy. I mean, these are profoundly subjective sort of reports. Um, so yeah, at the same time, I think there's, um, you know, I think there's uh, a lot more work that could be done looking at subjective experiences. Mm -hmm. So now talking about politics, because I mean, it's very easy for people particularly right-wing people to pick up on findings from evolutionary psychology and other biologically based sciences and make a case for defending their kind of ideology. I mean, the sort of simplistic way of looking at sex differences, for example, and say that uh, because men and women evolve this or that way, then they should in society right. behave this or that way or fill this or that role. Uh, I, I mean, is there anything in evolutionary psychology that really, just from a scientific point of view, would allow for people to use it in a political way? I, I mean, is it something in the science itself that could be political in any way? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think that there's anything in the science in and of itself that necessarily, you know, demands, you know, a right, you know, a, you know, sort of a right-wing perspective or a left-wing perspective. Um, I mean, I don't think so. I think that's, these are two separate questions. Um, I mean, I, I agree that people do, you know, grab a hold of these things and, you know, I mean, but the fact is that, I mean, there is work on the political, you know, perspectives of evolutionary psychologists and it's a, you know, like most scientists, evolutionary psychologists are extremely left-leaning. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're super liberal and, 
And yeah, I, I mean, that study, I think that from 20, uh, 2008 or 2009 by Geoffrey Miller and Joshua Tiber, who looked into the, the, right. uh, the political leanings of evolutionary psychologists, right? Yeah, and they're really, I mean, again, I, it's been a while since I looked at that work, but it's, my recollection is that evolutionary psychologists are not any more right-leaning than yeah. any other, you know, group of, you know, social scientists. Or scientists and so yeah I think it's just another tactic that people who misunderstand evolutionary psychology attempt to you know tar and feather you know evolutionary psychologists rather than engage the arguments I mean I think it's been pretty successful too you know and so in, in the sense of how evolutionary psychology is perceived I think it's perceived as you know this at least by some portion of the public or at least some portion of academia as you know, more right wing, you know, than I think it is. I mean, it's a scientific discipline. And I'm sure there are evolutionary psychologists who are very right leaning, just as I'm sure there are evolutionary psychologists who are very left leaning. And so I don't think there's anything, you know, uh, about evolutionary psychology that necessitates a particular political perspective. Right. I don't know if you agree with me, but I mean, for example, the left-wing people tend to be much more easily bothered by things like sex differences, or in this oh, case, yeah. or, or in this case, trying to understand the biological basis of sex differences, because it's not that they also, for example, people from sociology also study sex differences, but they tend to put it more into a social cultural perspective and try to understand where they come from, I mean, how society influences the rise of these sex differences that we find. Uh, but I mean, at the same time, isn't it the case that, at least th this is what I think, that uh, evolutionary psychology, because it tries to uh, understand or know what are what is the universal uh, evolved psychology of humans that perhaps I mean, it also tells us that we share uh, things with all other humans. I mean, per, and perhaps this political focus on the differences, being it sex differences or any other kind of individual differences, I, I mean, that's just ideological, right? I mean, I would say, yes. I mean, I think that is the case. Um, it does strike me as ideological. And I mean, I agree that it's people on the left uh, my, my sense is that most of them are not scientists, though. Uh, they're like, yeah. they're non-scientists. I'm not suggesting they're, they're not smart. I mean, many of them are super smart. Uh, but I think they're deeply blinkered and confused. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, I would just like to talk about one last topic. So sure. the topic of evolutionary mismatches. I, I mean, first of all, what is exactly an evolutionary mismatch? I mean, I don't know if you'd like to give us for an example or just explain the concept generally. Yeah, I think, uh, well, an, an evolutionary mismatch, if, if, depends, just to make sure we're talking about the same thing. Uh, I mean, this sure. would be, uh, so it's often talked about with respect to humans. And so the question is, I mean, is it ever the case that, you know, that, that adaptations find themselves in novel environments um, and to the extent that there's a mismatch between 
I don't some, somehow I don't like the term mismatch. But at any rate, um, might it be the case that our evolved psychology, um, you know, produces behaviors that, you know, are harmful to us uh, in a way that they're unlikely to have been harmful to us in our evolutionary past. And so I think a great example is uh, there's very good evidence that you know that universally humans have evolved mechanisms that motivate you know and that um, they motivate them to pursue and find you know um, super tasty things that are high in fat, high in sugar. Um, you know, I think the argument is that you know our ancestors are likely to have very rarely, occasionally stumbled upon ripe fruit, and you know, better eat it now because you don't know when's the next opportunity you might have. The problem is that those mechanisms, you know, we so we have those mechanisms, those evolved mechanisms, and they can, you know, uh, they can produce a lot of problems for modern humans, where you have super easy access to you know, to fast foods you know, that are just loaded. I mean, they're, they taste wonderful. They're loaded with high fat, high sugar, uh, and people eat, eat these things, you know, much more frequently um, than is likely to have been the case in our evolutionary past. And as a consequence, you know, modern peoples in the Western world, you know, experience much higher rates of, you know, cardiovascular disease and, um, you know, high blood pressure and all sorts of problems related to, you know, heavy consumption of, you know, high fat, you know, high sugar foods. So it's, there's a mismatch uh, in the sense that we have an evolved psychology that is located in an environment that has various features that uh, that were rare uh, in terms of the frequency of these features that, that were rare in our ancestral environment but are now widely accessible. So that's one example of, of an evolutionary mismatch. Um, and so yes, I think uh, there's there is great value in understanding and appreciating, you know, how unique features of our modern environment, you know, are processed by our evolved mechanisms of mind that evolved to solve problems in a sometimes very different environment, one that didn't include electricity, one that didn't include, you know, crushing populations, uh, one that didn't include, you know, rapid access to extraordinarily high fat, high sugar foods um, there. Right, I mean, but, but uh, I, I mean, uh, and since we were also earlier talking about uh, culture and where it comes from, I mean, since the kinds of environments we create or develop also stem, at least in part, from our evolutionary psychology, I mean, even things like fast food and things like yeah. uh, like that i mean it's not that we came up with a completely different nutrient that we weren't exposed to at all during our evolutionary history that are that is part of fast food i mean so at least in a sense i think we are par partly adapted even to our modern environments because the the things we created stem from that underlying evolution, evolved psychology. Oh yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think the the mismatch or the problem is that you know it's uh, I just had a, sorry, I thought for a moment about so-called super stimuli, you know, right. where oh, there's no doubt that I mean it's not an arbitrary set of you know features of our environment that we've produced. I mean. You're absolutely right that you know 
high fat, high sugar foods are so widely available because people purchase them, because people love them. And the problem is that we don't have like a shutdown valve, you know, to say that's enough, that's enough sugar, that's enough fat. Um, on top of the fact that we get far less exercise, just physical exercise, uh, than we are likely to have gotten ancestrally. Um, so I think it's a combination of factors. Yes, but I think, um, right, to understand the production of these, you know, you know, these sorts of cultural paraphernalia, you have to understand, you know, evolved psychology. Uh, but the fact that it's produced by evolved psychology doesn't clearly doesn't guarantee that it therefore, however you define good, is going to be good for us. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So uh, just one last question. What, sure. What are for you some of the most interesting questions that evolutionary psychology hasn't answered yet and that you would like to see explored in the future? Well, I mean, we've actually talked about two of those areas. I mean, I really, I mean, just to cast a very wide net, I think individual differences remain. I think we've made some progress for sure, uh, but I think there's much more interesting work to be done on understanding individual differences. Um, I think evolutionary psychology has done a fantastic job, you know, Buss and his colleagues, uh, you know, of, of outlining when and under what conditions we might expect sex differences. Um, even when and why, why we, we might expect uh, species differences, that is differences between say chimps and, and humans. But I, I think it remains, you know, there's a lot of puzzles that remain about individual differences. Um, I mean, the fact that, you know, that there really hasn't been a successful marriage of behavioral genetics and evolutionary psychology, you know, at least that's broadly accepted, um, I think suggests that, um, it, that, that can be resolved. I mean, but at least maybe that's an optimistic way to frame things. I think it's, I think individual differences are the most important broad domain that remain uh, to, be, to be understood from an evolutionary perspective. Um, you know, and I think the other area is, um, uh, is morality, you know, and uh, I think that is also fascinating and, and challenging and, um, and I think also, I think will, you know, the work that has been done on morality has focused mostly on, you know, it's been very human centered, which makes sense. I mean, which, you know, but again, I think, I think there's more that we can do, you know, in terms of appreciating non-humans and, you know, sort of the, uh, call it morality. I mean, I'd call it morality. I know some people sort of balk at talking about uh, morality and non-humans. They sometimes. I, I mean, are you referring, for example, or alluding to the work by Franz Duval when he talks about chimpanzee morality and politics yeah. and stuff like that? I mean, I I have. I think that's the way we should talk about it. I think there's a lot that we can learn about human morality by better appreciating how non-humans, you know, sort of perceive and react to questions of fairness and unfairness. Um, so I find it very interesting and I find it very um, enlightening. Um, but I think that's that's an area where I think there's going to be um, further progress. Um, yeah, I would say 
Jennifer Vonk has done some really neat work. Um, I mean, there's a, a, a group of people who are doing work on morality. They call it morality in non-humans. I mean, whether it's rats or dogs or, you know, or, or chimps. Um, I think there's, um, there's a lot of interesting work that remains to be done, particularly in helping to, to, to paint, you know, an integrated picture of morality and sort of, you know, bringing in work on dogs and rats and chimps and humans. Um, but it's many careers worth of, worth of research and work there. Yeah, sure. So the book is again the Sage Handbook of Evolutionary Psychology. I will be leaving a link to it in the description box of the interview. Uh, Dr. Shackleford, would you like to mention where people can find you on the internet? Yes, uh, I do have a lab webpage, which is uh, Um And there you can find uh, links to this, uh, to the handbook of evolutionary psychology, and as well as to other uh, volumes we published and and our research articles and links to our lab members and so forth so it's all there and I, I'm always um, you know anyone's uh, welcome to contact me by email as well okay great so again it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and as always I hope to have you somewhere in the future again on the show because you're already an old guest of the show so thank you again for your time my pleasure thanks so much Ricardo Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. So, to keep the channel sustainable and to keep it running, I would like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page. You have all sorts of benefits there and any amount, even just $1 would already be a great help. You also have links to PayPal in the description box. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perga Larsen, Lagurero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Forrest Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervois, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, George Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Weira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dez Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roch, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Van Eckdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Muller, Vega Guidi, Sardus France, 
and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.